Right? That's what it was saying. Was it too wordy or something? No, not necessarily. It was just that I... <laughs> not necessarily. I thought, I thought it was supposed to be a technical term, but it wasn't. All right, pass your... Uh, change it, change your... Uh... Forget it. Oh. That's the whole theory that... Oh, great. Well... Let's see what happens. True or false, biblical inspiration means that the writers of the scriptures composed and recorded without error God's revelation to man in the words of the original autographs. That is true. Yeah, so <laughs> we'll talk about that today, what it means at length, but that is indeed, well, how we define inspiration. True or false, the indwelling presence of the Spirit on all believers only occurred in the New Testament era. Believers in the Old Testament were only indwelt by the Spirit of God for a particular purpose. Once again, true. Once again, true. Can they all be true? No. True or false? According to the book, the sin of unbelief is the same as the sin against the Spirit, the unpardonable sin. False. 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 Yeah, it's not the same as unbelief. Sin against the Spirit, the unpardonable sin, would be the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And he draws a very, very strict line, which I think is interesting. Uh, I don't know if I agree with him 100%, but it's what he says. And we'll talk about that, hopefully, if we get to it today. Uh, short answer. At what point do believers receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit? What you put? You said conversion. Yeah. Uh, confession. Conversion. Confession? Well, just like when they confess their sin. I, I mentioned okay. When they get conversion would be a better word, but I will take confession. I'll take it, even though technically that's well, not the right term. I was saying, I just didn't just put a little X. Catholic confession. Go. When they get saved, right? You should have put right. the, then you should have put that. No, it's okay. I'll accept it. I'll accept it. But the idea is that conversion, at justification. You can even say salvation, whatever. Multiple choice. The principal idea of sealing is that of blank. The believer is sealed with the spirit to identify the believer as blank. Is it empowering, empowerment as serving God, miracle worker as a miracle worker for God, enjoyment as enjoying God, or ownership as belonging to God? Enjoying God. <laughs> it's D. It's D. D is in dog. All right. True, true, false. Conversion. D is in dog. Pass them in, right? Number correct at the top. Do you purposely like, make some quizzes significantly harder than others? Was this significantly harder than others? Oh, yes. yeah, sorry, the answer is no. No, I mean, this one was like significantly easier than the last one. And so then the I last one was a little bit hard. And I overstudied for the next one. Well, the last one, I didn't realize it was as hard as it was. That's the problem with knowing the material as well as I do. <laughs> right, right. Is that, uh, is that you look at this stuff and you think, oh, that's easy. And actually, it's not. So take your notes. We're going to talk about the spirit and revelation inspiration. Um, I, I really like this topic. I think it will be um, enjoyable for you as well. At least I hope it is. We talk about the spirit's work. One of the primary works of the spirit is in revelation and inspiration. So if you have your Bible, you might want to have it handy. A lot of the verses I have in there. Um, if you find errors, let me know because I this is this is a little bit like I can still feel the warmth of it coming off the printer. Um, and so if you if you understand what I mean, it's, I was just telling them I had some other obligations this week that kind of tied me up. So I was a little bit behind on my normal prep. Um, the spirit and revelation and inspiration definitions. Let's talk about revelation. When we talk about revelation. We're talking about the word um, disclosure or unveiling. Um, revelation 
um, is an unveiling of truth that previously would not have been known. So biblical context revelation is God revealing to man something man would not otherwise know. Uh, you would not in otherwise know this information. Um, there is no way you would understand the doctrine of salvation unless God revealed it to us through his word. There is a, there is a, uh, a truth to this. We see this in Ezekiel 2, 2, that the spirit is the one who is doing this revelation. The spirit entered me when he spoke to me. He stretched out the form of a hand, took me by the lock of my hair, and the Spirit lifted me up. This idea of Ezekiel, uh, the prophet, speaking through the power of the Spirit. Okay? Um, what is inspiration? Uh, this word, inspiration, defined here, is God's superintending human authors so that using... There's some cool notes right there. Yep, we're just getting started. So that using their own individual personalities, they composed and recorded without error his revelation to man in the words of the original autographs. There are lots of elements to this definition. This is not a, a bibliology class or a doctrine of the Bible class, but I do want to talk about this a little bit so you understand what he's saying. First, human authors. So we talk about the doctrine of inspiration of the Bible is different from the doctrine of, say, how the Muslims talk about the Quran being a perfect holy book. They believe these are the words of Allah. They do not believe that Muhammad, uh, these are not the words of Muhammad, they are the words of Allah. That's what they would say. But we believe these are words for men. For example, you find this to be true when Paul writes his letters. He says, I, when he's talking about I, it's not talking about God, he's talking about Paul. Um, we see this all the time in, in the books of uh, uh, Psalms when David is confessing sin against you and you only have I sinned, O Lord. This is not God talking. This is God inspiring David in his speech. Okay, so that's the first part. That's also using their own, so human authors, uh, their own personalities. So if you've read the Bible long enough, you'll notice that some writers sound different than others. Can you give me an example of some, have you ever noticed this before, that some authors sound a certain way and other authors sound a different way? Have you ever noticed this before? Can you give me an example of somebody who you've noticed or a, maybe perhaps, I don't put you on the spot, but anybody can. You can tell the difference between like Paul and John. Yeah, Paul and John, very different. Writers, uh, different styles, uh, very different styles. Uh, even, even Mark and Luke, very different styles. Mark is extremely fast-paced, action-packed, compact storytelling. And Luke is very character-driven. And he's so interested in the people around Jesus. He talks about them. He gives details about them. He's so fascinated by the people. John is very much obsessed with, if you want to think of it that way, um, the connection of Jesus to like the temple and his, his, his act of, of being the living water and all these symbols of being the, the living water and being the, the new and the new birth and then the living bread and all these things. Like it, it's almost like he's 
and Jesus is like the, um, the Passover lamb. And so all these pictures are very interesting to John. John really draws that out and emphasizes certain things. Even in the Old Testament, you see this with um, Daniel reads differently than Psalms, which reads differently than Proverbs, which reads differently than Genesis. Like their own unique personalities come out and that, isn't, that doesn't dilute the work of the Spirit in superintending what they wrote. So they composed and recorded without error God's revelation to man in the words of the original autographs. One more thing I want to point out is that this is not dictation. And the reason it's not dictation is because dictate is the nature of dictation. So if I were to say, Casey, I'm going to dictate a letter to you, for you. Okay. He takes out his pen and I say, Dear Harvest Church family, it has come to my attention that some of the people within our church congregation are not fans of the Clemson Tigers, to which is greatly disturbing to my soul. (laughs) Therefore, I shall be declaring whatever, 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 punishments on all, blessings on a few, signed, and then who signs it? I sign it with your name. Marshall, right? Pastor Marshall. Who's doing the writing? Casey, but who's actually doing the writing? Me. It's my voice through his hand. So his personality doesn't matter in this situation. All he's doing is transcribing what I'm writing. And so by dictation, when we talk about dictation, if God, God does do this sometimes. He says, write, thus says the Lord. And then boom, there's the dictation from the Lord. But most of the stuff is not straight from God. It is uh, through a personality, through a person. So uh, the spirit is the one guiding here. And the other last point is the original autographs. And why would we say um, that that... And autograph if, um, just is made up of two, two Greek words. Auto, which is self, or uh, one. And then graphe, which is writing. Right. So the self, the, the original writing, uh, that's why we call your signature an autograph. Why would we say that's where the inspiration lies? Why not something else? Why not the copies? Well, because copies are, are, there's human translation, uninspired human translation involved in copies. Well, in copies, there's no translation. If they were just making a copy, there's just, just transmission, right? Transmission. Yeah, transmission from one, like I'm copying it over and over and over again, and errors show up because I'm a human being making uh making mistakes when I copy things, um, or in trans or in translation, there are, you know, things that happen, but, and we see that we can look at the, uh, we can look at original Greeks we can find, I mean, not originals. We, we can find Greek copies and they differ in some areas, but we can by looking at the differences point back to the original. And that's another whole discussion, but in the original, it was not with error. You know, God inspired it. We have that, that truth here. So revelation is the material witness in inspiration, you're blank there, the method for this material witness to come about. Method. 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is given by inspiration of God, which means inspiration is the word, um, anybody know what this word comes from or what it means in the Greek? God breathed. Now, when I say that, as we've been talking about the spirit, does anything pop into your head? This is a blank, by the way, on your, on your thing. God breathed. Breathing 
Yeah, breathing life. So let me write it this way. In Greek, it's theo penustos. Where, where do you see it? What is, what is the word for spirit in Greek? It's pneuma. Right? Or pneuma. And so pneustos is connected to this word, breath, wind, or spirit. So God breathed. God's spirit is very involved in his breath in a sense. There's like a little bit of play on words here. The inspiration is not the same way when we talk about I sat down at the piano and was inspired. It's not how it works. Okay, we're talking about God's breathing out the words. So some people have said inspiration. You see the word spirit in there? Spiration. You see that? Right? Even in our words, spirit or spiration or sprite has to do with spirit and breath. Inspiration. Some people have said um, a better word is spiration, just spiration, that it came out of God. It wasn't something that came in him. It wasn't, you know. So the scriptures are the, pro- are the product of the creative breath of God. God, by his breath, we see a couple examples here in Psalm 33. He formed the heavens. He revealed the scriptures. What are some channels of revelation? Well, we have the Old Testament prophet. Uh, the prophet's message did not come from himself, but from the Lord. We see that. Throughout the Old Testament, Jeremiah chapter 1, the words of Jeremiah, the son of Hilkiah, the priest, uh, who were in, who were in uh, Anathoth in the land of Benjamin, to whom the word of the Lord came. So the word of the Lord came to the prophet. Also, the Holy Spirit is a secondary or a second uh, stream through which the, uh, the prophecy came. No prophecy ever came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. They were carried along. You see that? Moved, carried along. It's the same word there. The Holy Spirit protected the prophets from speaking error. Now, I want to make clear that he only protected them from speaking error when they were speaking on his behalf. An inspired prophet could still lie. Or could do something wrong, okay? If you were inspired, it did not mean that you were inspired all the time. It's that your work that God did through you was inspired, and a prophet, when he spoke for God, was inspired. Yeah, Jonah, right? Jonah's a great example. He's not a very, not a very good guy when he's saying, I do well to be angry, you know, because I know that you're a good God. I don't want these people to get um, mercy. Um, some of the prophets who are controlled by the Spirit mentioned explicitly in the Bible. We see David, Ezekiel, and Micah are three explicitly mentioned. Not just, not just speaking the truth, but controlled by the Spirit. What are some of the methods of revelation? The, the book points out spoken word. We see this, thus says the Lord. Um, the second is, uh, so it seems like God actually spoke to people. They heard and they wrote, something like that. Um, also dreams. I think this is interesting. I'm not sure if I buy what he says here, but I think it's interesting, which is that he said that dreams, I don't know. Did y'all pick up on this? I I don't know if you realize what what I'm talking about here, but like he said, there are dreams, then visions. What was the last one? Was that it? With the offenings. 
didn't think much of dreams. I remember reading. Yeah, well, what he said was is that God communicates through dreams, visions, and theophanies in the Old Testament. And we did with dreams, this could be to anybody, right? He said not necessarily mature. Uh, and he points out some of the examples. Um, a dream was more suitable for people with little or no spiritual discernment. The recipient was neutralized and his personality existed only as an inert instrument to whom information might be imparted without hindrance of an improper paganistic response. So such as Abimelech, Jacob, Joseph, Nebuchadnezzar, Pharaoh. Okay. It's interesting. I never really considered this before. The second, visions, we see dreams and visions. I've always said the difference between a dream and a vision is that dreams, you're sleeping, and visions, you're awake. Okay. But here he points out that um, it seems that prophetic visions were given to those who were more mature in their faith. So, more mature. And we see people like Abraham, Nathan... Ezekiel and Daniel, who received visions. The last category, excuse me, I have something in my nose here, is the manifestation of God in physical... There we go. Sorry. In a physical form. The Greek word, theophany, is theos and phanane, which is to appear, to appear. And we have several examples here. Abraham, Joshua, Gideon. And Daniel, um, where God actually appears in a physical form, is actually one missing off his list. Any other interesting um, theophanies in the Bible that you can think of in the Old Testament? Well, there's Balaam and the donkey. I don't know if that's... That's not a theophany, right? The donkey is not God in human flesh. I'm looking... Angels don't count. Oh, I see what you're saying. They see the angel there in the way. Yeah. No, not angels. God himself showing himself. That would be one. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fire. But the, the, the theophany in that case is interesting because we don't know if there was any information imparted. A lot of times there's information given. So like when Abraham... They have the three strangers on the road, the representation of God, and um, they give they give information about um, uh, about the uh, his son. Yeah. Moses uh, Moses on yeah when Moses is on the mountain. Yeah, I don't think he's in here. I, I was thinking of of um, of Jacob Israel, like he wrestles with God. He have wrestled with God, like he has a he has a wrestling match with a God in you know God in the flesh. Yeah, so I think that's this is part of my uh, part of my a little bit of um, I'm not sure if I buy his his distinctions here on maturity levels. I think it's an interesting idea. I don't know how cut and dry it is because Jacob obviously had the dream in Bethel, right? Jacob's ladder. But he also had a direct interaction with God later in life, or later, not too much later, where the hip, remember his hip got touched. So anyway, um, theophanies, they do happen. It's important to remember that. So this is all prior to 
uh, the coming of Christ. In fact, I believe that every theophany in the Bible is a manifestation of the Son, is, is a pre-incarnate Christ. Because John says, no man has seen the Father at any time. The only begotten of the Father, the only begotten uh, Son who's in the bosom of the Father, he has made him known. And there's a textual variant there that says, the only begotten God who's in the bosom of the Father, he has made him known. So the Son is the one who, who makes known the Father. We talked about that in Christology. Let's talk about inspiration of the Old Testament. There are several reasons why we should believe the Old Testament was inspired by the Holy Spirit or is inspired by the Holy Spirit. Number one, so Old Testament writers were conscious that the Holy Spirit was guiding their writing. Um, we see this in 2 Samuel here. The Spirit of the Lord spoke by me. His word was on my tongue. This is uh, David. You know, God, he knows that the Spirit of God is guiding his speech. He tells us that. Number two, Christ taught that the Old Testament writers were guided by the Holy Spirit. So if Jesus is teaching something, you need to pay attention. He says in uh, Mark 12, David himself said what? What does that say there on your, your notes? By the Holy Spirit, meaning that the Holy Spirit was the instrument by which David spoke. Or the means by which David spoke. Or the motivation. or something. He, was the, he, he was the one who pushed David to speak. Speaking by the Spirit. Apostles, so the next one, taught the Old Testament writers were guided by the Holy Spirit. We see this in Acts chapter 1. One of the messages, men and brethren, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which was which the Holy Spirit spoke before by the mouth of David. We see um, the Holy Spirit speaking, and the mouth he's speaking by is David's mouth, which is a little fascinating way of saying that. But it's the same, it's the same stuff we're talking about. It's the same, same doctrine. Okay? Also, the inspiration of the New Testament. So we see the inspiration of the Old and the New. If we affirm here that Christ affirmed the inspiration of the New Testament. So Christ predicted that the apostles would be protected in their writing. John 14, the helper of the Holy Spirit whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things. And bring to your remembrance all things that I've said to you. This is a promise that the Holy Spirit would be with them and guide them. So he guided them in the following ways. He helped the writers remember the facts of Christ's teaching. He enabled them to remember or to understand theologically what they were writing. Remember that they did not understand what was going on during Jesus' ministry. And three, he guaranteed the completion of the New Testament. John 14, 26 says, all things. He'll bring to remembrance all things I've said to you. It does not mean that we have everything that Jesus ever said in the Bible. Because we're told that. And at the end of John, he says, the books could not contain, right? things that were written, but we have what we need and we have all things that God wanted us to have. The, number two, the New Testament writers recognized they were writing scripture. They recognized they were writing scripture. They did not think they were just writing letters or um, whatever, or, or, or um, history books. They realized what they were doing. First Corinthians 14, Paul writes, he says, if anyone thinks himself to be a prophet or spiritual, let him not acknowledge that the things which I write to you are the commandments of the Lord. He identifies what he's writing as the commandments of God. Paul's teachings have been given him through direct revelation. Paul's teaching was taught to him by the Holy Spirit. Paul's teaching was God's commandment and free from error. 1 Thessalonians 4, another powerful verse here. For you know the commandments we gave you through the Lord Jesus. Uh, actually, the one I was thinking was the next one, 1 Thessalonians 2.13. For this reason, we thank God without ceasing, because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, so there's a word of God through us, how do they respond? You welcomed it, not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God. 
which effectively works in you who believe. So number three here, the New Testament writers also recognize each other's writings are inspired. In 1 Timothy 5, we have Paul saying, For the scripture says, You shall not muzzle an ox while it treads the grain. That's Deuteronomy 25.4. And his second quote here is, The laborer is worthy of his wages. Luke 10.7. So he quotes the Old Testament and the New Testament and calls it both scripture. Okay. Peter equates Paul's writings with the rest of Scripture. In 2 Peter 3, he talks about how people twist things, and they say they untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction as they do also the rest of the Scriptures. And what is he talking about here? He's talking about Paul in his epistles. He talks about Paul's epistles. Sometimes things are hard to understand. I can agree with that. I'm trying to teach through Romans on Sunday nights. I can tell you there are some things that are hard to understand. Another parallel here is 2 Peter 3, 2. The words which were spoken before the holy prophets of the commandment of us, the apostles of our Lord and Savior. Kind of comparing the two. So what's the Spirit's ministry in the Old Testament? Well, first, regeneration. Were all people in the Old Testament who were saved regenerated? What does regeneration mean? From last week's quiz? Born again. So if you were saved, if you were converted in the Old Testament, when you believed in God, would you be regenerated? The answer is yes. Absolutely. Absolutely. In fact, in John 3, when he deals with Nicodemus, he assumes that Nicodemus should have known this. He says, Nicodemus, you, you should have known, you're not a teacher in Israel, and do you not understand this? The Spirit is the one who regenerates. We see this in Ezekiel 36, perhaps. I think I have it there in front of you. This picture of taking your heart. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will take out the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. You will keep my judgments and do them. This is probably what he's talking about. Either that or the valley of dry bones, the picture there. I guess it's the same, kind of the same picture. But specifically these two verse, these three verses here, 25, 26, and 27. Very important. So there is regeneration on all, but the second is uh, selective, selective indwelling. This is where things are different in the Old Testament and the New. There's a huge difference the way God deals with people in the Old Testament and the New Testament. So while all who were saved in the Old Testament were regenerated by the Holy Spirit, not all were indwelt by the Spirit. If you have to remember something for a quiz or a test or whatever, this is a very important point here. Because there's a selective indwelling. There's a really good book by Jim Hamilton called, uh, uh, oh man, it's indwelt, maybe it's called indwelling of the Spirit. I have it on my shelf. It's brown. I know that much. Um, I gotta look this up. Brown book. It's a brown book by Jim Hamilton. Uh, oh, yeah. Spirit and dwelling. I gotta look this up. I can't. God's indwelling presence. It is brown. I mean, look at it. I'll show you his picture of it. Right. Oh, that's not it. Come on. Show me a picture of this book. It's it's right there. That's the color. See that? Is that brown? Okay. Okay. It's like mom. 
God's indwelling presence. And he argues this, that there's a selective indwelling in the Old Testament. And that is true. That is a very clear. The new ministry of the Spirit, you notice what he says in John 14. I will pray this, the Father who will give you another helper and he will abide with you forever. The Spirit of truth in the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. Um, the new ministry of the Spirit, I have four uh, bullet points here. Number one, indwelling. It will be an indwelling presence. He'll be with you. It'll be permanent forever. In uh, the Old Testament, the indwelling presence was not indwelling and permanent. It was selective and temporary. Okay, so the New Testament is different. Indwelling means um, coming upon. So in the Old Testament, you often had this idea of the Spirit of God coming upon someone. And I would say that's exactly the same. I agree with ends here. That's exactly the same as the indwelling of the Spirit. So um, notice in the Old Testament, the Spirit typically came upon someone for a purpose of doing a specific task. There's your blank. A task. So the indwelling was not for salvation, but for empowerment, for doing something, for doing a task. Such as Othniel. In Judges, of Gideon, in Judges, of Jephthah, Samson, <clears throat> Balaam, and um, Bazalel. I don't know who Bezalel is, actually. Oh, yeah, he's the iron worker or something. He did, a, he did special skills, yeah, for the building of the temple, or a tabernacle. Yeah, forgot about that <clears throat> for a second there. Forgot so, about a major character. A major character, yeah, yeah. Wow. Did you know who that was? There's one. Uh, yeah. <laughs> there, there's more. Yeah, these are just a couple examples, right? There's more. Um, Volverd's three observations are good here. He says that the spirit indwelling in the life of a person had no evident relationship to that person's spiritual condition. How do we know that's true? In other words, they could be a, they could be a pagan and, be, and, and have the spirit of God come upon them. Balaam. Balaam. And think about Samson's life, man. He was a wicked, wicked. And this has been a problem for a lot of Christians when we read these stories. We, we, have, we have a hard time uh, divorcing our New Testament concept of the spirit indwelling with our experience of when you're saved, the spirit indwells you. Whereas in the Old Testament, that's not how it was. The spirit would temporarily come upon people and indwell them for a specific task for a short-term thing. And then he would remove himself. Um, so the Spirit's indwelling was a sovereign working of God in the person to perform a specific task. It did not have anything to do with their particular salvation. This also explains why in the, the book of Luke, it talks about John the Baptist being indwelt with the Spirit and his, in, his, in his birth. He was indwelt. He had the Spirit of God um, possessing him prior to his birth. That had nothing to do with his salvation. That had to do, he was an Old Testament, remember, he's prior to the establishment of the church. So even it's in the, our New Testament books, the, what happens with John the Baptist, he's the last Old Testament prophet, if you think of it that way. If you think about the timeline, he's the last Old Testament prophet. So he was possessed by and dwelt by um, the Spirit of God in his, in his in mother's womb, but that had nothing to do with being born again. 
That had to do with his equipping to do a specific task. And lastly, the Holy Spirit's indwelling was temporary. That's number three under Wal- uh, Walverd's three observations. And he points out here from 1 Samuel that when they came to the hill, this is Saul, there was a group of prophets, and the Spirit of God came upon Saul. So the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, comes upon Saul and he begins to prophesy. Speak, the tr- you know, speak words. Um, but then later, because of, Sam- because of Saul's behavior, disobedience, etc., the Holy Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. So the Spirit departed. That also explains, if you think about what, what um, David prays in his prayer of repentance and confession, let not your Holy Spirit depart from me or be taken from me. Take not your Spirit away from me. That's not a prayer request that Christians have to pray. If you have the Spirit, you have the Spirit. It will not depart from you. You have the indwelling permanent Spirit of God. That is an Old Testament fact, not a New Testament reality. That was what part of the amazing thing about Pentecost and when Jesus left. He said, I have to leave or else the Spirit can't come uh, to be with you, and, I, and he, he'll be with you, and it's better that you're with. In fact, that's also part of the reason that Jesus says that um, he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John the Baptist. Is because if you're least in the kingdom of heaven, you have the Spirit of God living in you. You are, you are greater than John the Baptist who did not have that privilege. He had, was empowered by the Spirit, but he didn't have the same kind of um, a presence that we even have today. The last part, in number three, there is restraining sin. Restraining sin. Genesis 6.3, the context of Genesis 6 is what? Genesis 6. No, it's Genesis 3. So Genesis 6. Genesis 6, 1. Babel. Babel's Genesis 11. Too far. That's not... Noah. 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 Noah and the flood, right? So violence was all over the world, right? All the intents of man's heart were only evil continually. And God says, my spirit shall not strive with man forever, indeed, uh, for he is indeed flesh, and his days shall be 120 years. This restraining of sin that is going to be removed even later, uh, we find out in the book of, I think it's First or Second Thessalonians, I can't remember which. Um, God's spirit striving with man. A couple different ways to read that. Um, the interpretation here in this theology book is that God restrains sin by his presence of his spirit. People aren't as bad as they could be. Lastly, ability to service, as I mentioned earlier, to perform a task. I think it's a little bit repetitive, so I didn't go any further in the notes. There's some work in the book about that. Let's talk about the spirit in relation to Christ. How is the spirit related to Jesus Christ? Well, first, obviously, the virgin birth. There's a huge relationship there. Um, I don't have a lot of notes for you here, a lot of blanks for you here, so just we'll briefly go through these since we've already talked a lot about Christology. Uh, the Spirit is the agent of the virgin birth. He's involved in Mary's conception. We see that the Spirit uh, overshadowed her. We, uh, that's very, made very explicit in the book of Matthew and the book of Luke. The results are that Jesus, um, uh, the human nature of Christ, came into existence. Christ, the person, did not come into existence for Christ, is preexistent. But the human nature of Christ had a beginning in Mary's womb. Therefore, the human nature of Christ was sinless because it was brought by the Spirit of God. 
The human nature of Christ also brought, there's a mistake there, sorry, brought human limitations. We talked about this in Christology. Secondly, the life and ministry of Christ uh, is involved with the Spirit. The Holy Spirit anoints Christ. We see that in Luke 4 when uh, Jesus gets up to speak in the synagogue. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He's quoting here the book of Luke, I think it's Isaiah 61. Yeah, I put it right below that. He has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor, sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, to recovery the sight of the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. God's anointing work to begin his ministry. Okay. It designated Jesus as Israel's Messiah and King. It introduced Jesus to his public ministry. It empowered Jesus for his public ministry and anointed was a divine authentication of Jesus. Secondly, the Holy Spirit filled Christ. It anointed Christ. He filled Christ. We see this in Mark 1 and in Luke 4, that he is full of the Holy Spirit, led around by the Spirit. But this picture is actually that the Spirit compelled Christ into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. Fascinating um, use of that word. The idea that the Spirit drove him is what it says in Mark 1. But the idea is compelled or impelled or pushed him. Um... Also, the Holy Spirit involved, number three, in the death of Christ. Uh, in Hebrews 9, he says, How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot to God? So, through the Spirit, the blood of Christ is offered. Uh, he was, his death was tied up in the Spirit. Um, in Isaiah, the suffering servant is one who comes to bear the sins of many. Uh, I have put my Spirit upon him. Also in the resurrection, we see every member of the Trinity involved in the resurrection. Raised by the power of the Father, Ephesians 1. Christ has the power to raise himself, John 10. And the Spirit involved in the resurrection, Romans 1.4. Let me read Romans 1.4 here. I cannot remember how that goes. Declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection of the dead, from the dead. So we mentioned uh, the sin against the Holy Spirit. Uh, did you guys get a chance to read this section? And um, I thought it was very interesting. There are several sins against the Spirit uh, that we might commit. One is quenching the Spirit, grieving the Spirit. Uh, the second and the third would be blaspheming the Spirit. This is the one that people normally talk about as the sin against the Holy Spirit or the unpardonable sin. As it's mentioned, um, why don't we turn to our, in our Bibles, Matthew 12. So we can see this in context. Excuse me. So Jesus is going around doing miracles. He is Lord of the Sabbath. He is healing on the Sabbath. And... And then he casts out a demon in verse 22. The one, then one was brought to him who was demon-possessed, blind and mute. And he healed him, so the blind and mute man both spoke and saw. All the multitudes were amazed and said, could this be the son of David? Now, what, what does the son of David mean? What does that title indicate? Remember this from Christology section. That he was Jesus. He was prophesied to be yeah. David. Son of David, king, really. Like David's a king. Son of David, Messiah, king in David's seat. Right. Very important. Could this be the one? It'd be like saying the one. Okay. 
No mistaking what they're asking. And when the Pharisees heard it, what did they hear? People wondering, is this, is this the Christ? The Pharisees hear this discussion and they desire to, to squelch it, to quash it. They say, this man does not cast out demons except by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. Of course, we talked about this last time, but Beelzebub is the Hebrew name for the Lord of the Flies, the Lord of Refuse, Dung. Okay, it's a, it's a name of a demon or of Satan himself. So he says, this guy doesn't cast out demons by the Spirit of God. He casts out demons by Satan. And then Jesus goes on to explain, every kingdom divided against itself shall come to desolation. Um, and he describes why it's impossible for him to be casting out demons by Satan's power. Then he says this in verse 31. Look in your Bible. It says, Therefore I say to you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven men. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. Okay, very serious. So the question is, what is this? blasphemy, sinning against the Spirit, speaking against the Spirit. In the book, um, he makes several explanations here. If you look at the explanation, verse uh, number one here, 6.2.1, the sin is against Christ. So the evaluation of Christ's ministry was that he was acting in the power of Satan. They did not deny the miracles. They rejected the source. Okay. Secondly, the sin is also against the Spirit. The Holy Spirit. They ascribed his works to Satan. I quote the book here a couple times because I think he's, very, he's making a very specific argument. He says, The sin against the Spirit was final and unforgivable because they had the witness of the words and works of Christ. Moreover, they could have been forgiven and they only rejected the witness of Christ. This is fascinating. Jesus says, Hey, if you sin against me, you can be forgiven. But they rejected the final witness who is the testimony of the Holy Spirit. There was no further witness to be given to them. So the question is, is, is this possible to be committed today? The book's answer is to commit the sin of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit would require the physical presence of Jesus Christ in which he would teach and perform miracles while the hearers and onlookers would reject his ministry, saying he is working by the power of Satan. The sin of blasphemy against the Spirit is not the same as unbelief. There is no indication in Scripture that if a person has once refused the gospel, he will never again have the opportunity to believe, nor is there any particular sin today that cannot be forgiven. I do agree with the second half. I'm not so sure about how, how precise he, he, he makes this. As in, you had to have seen Jesus with your eyes and deny that the work of the Spirit, or call the work of the Spirit the work of Satan. Like you had that, All those categories had to be met in order for this sin to be qualified. Or to, 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 to not be forgiven. Um, and this is a little bit of discussion. We have about five minutes or so. What, what do you see are the strengths or weaknesses of his argument here in the book? I, don't, I haven't asked you to do this much yet. But if you think about what he's saying here, do you follow his argument so far? Are you following his argument so far? Yeah? Do, do you think that... I've already given you, I've tipped my hand a little bit saying that I think he's being a little too narrow, but talk to me a little bit about this. What do you think? In what ways is it, are you convinced? I mean, you might, you might say, absolutely. I think that's a really good argument. What do you think, Matt? You look like you're going to say something. I think you could, without, I mean, 
and then you could argue if he was there or not. You could witness a miracle and then say it was by the power of Satan instead of... Right. Would be about as close... Okay, so if we did an analogy today was say, witnessing a miracle like they did. They saw a man who was demon-possessed. Jesus cast out the demons. And they said, oh, you're doing this by, by Satan. Um... Yeah, that's a, that's that could be. I'm I'm. I, what are what are some other thoughts you have about this? If, Any? if your blas if the sin or if the problem is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, I mean, the whole, it's not like the Holy Spirit stopped working; He continues to work today. Mm -hmm. So I don't understand exactly what Christ's presence has to do with it, other than the fact that He was and is the one that they thought He was. But it seems more. Well, it's, the, the argument he's making is that because the sin was against Jesus and against the Spirit, it's not just a sin against the Spirit. It's a blasphemy of the Spirit, but it's a sin. You're looking at Jesus' work, and you're saying, that's not the work of Jesus. That's the work of, a, that's the, work of the devil. He's doing this by the power of the devil. Um, that's the argument. I, 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 so I understand his argument. I just my, 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 my question is, is, if you look at so the book of Matthew... Was it written before or after Jesus had risen from the dead and it ascended into heaven? It was written after, right? Because it talks about that. Like, it can't be written before. So if Jesus is no longer on the earth, when Matthew is written, why have the warning if it's impossible to do that sin? To me, it's just like, to me, it's a very simple, like, I, I don't know. I understand the argument he's making. So here, here's, kind of where I, here's kind of where I settle. I think it's possible, and the only reason that it's possible to commit this, I don't believe it's possible for a Christian to commit. Because if you're, if you're a Christian, you have the Spirit of God living in you, and you, 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 know, you can't blaspheme the Holy Spirit in this way. You can't, you can't commit a sin that cannot be forgiven. If your sins have already been forgiven, they've been washed by Christ. So it's not talking about Christians. It's talking about people who are defiant against God. Okay, that's the first thing. And I think it's the, the role that, and this again, I'm, I'm being just as, as up here and kind of out there as this guy, as, as he is. Everyone has to be a little bit like, this is our ideas, right? We don't really know for certain. It's my perspective that the work of the Spirit, that, that God uses the Spirit, uh, the, the role of the Spirit, the, the Holy Spirit, the Father uses the work of the Holy Spirit in salvation to the extent that some people are so blasphemous and so um, belligerent against the Spirit that they refuse the Spirit and they reject the Spirit to the degree that they will never be forgiven that blasphemy because they will never pursue that, that forgiveness. It will never be offered to them. It will never come to God because they are kind of like the, uh, the um, un, unregenerate or um, uh, uh, as Romans chapter 1 talks about, the, the de degenerate hearts who have been turned over to their own. That's kind of where I land. I do think it's, I, I have a hard time being so narrow as to say, well, this is only talking about when Jesus was alive. Because I don't understand how that, why, why it would even be included in our Bibles as a warning. Because it seems like it's a warning. If it's not meant for people, you know, you know what I'm saying? Does that make sense? You kind of see my, see my struggle here? To a point, my brother-in-law is very much like this. He, he used to be a Christian and then he just really hates everything about God. Okay. For lots of various reasons, but... It seems like, though, that, that 
it, it's, it seems to be that position in conflict with salvation is free for anyone in any state if, mm-hmm. if it seems to even if giving oneself over to one's own awful devices it seems like a hopeless message it does in some ways but I, I, we're, not, oh, we're not the ones who are determining when someone's committed the unpardonable sin that's the truth you can't, and the impartable sin is not, some people have said there was a rumor that got started in Christianity. I don't know how this happened, but like a lot of people think that unpardonable sin is suicide for some reason. Um, and I'm like, no, like, I don't know why people think that there's a whole, um, for hundreds of years, people have had this thing where they think that if you, you know, commit suicide, you go straight to hell. That's not true. Um, or that you can't be forgiven that sin. This is a very, this is a specific sin of blasphemy against the spirit calling the Spirit's work this work of Satan and, and directly defying God's work. This is not actually walking away from the faith. It's not the same thing. This is a very specific sin. I do, I do agree with that. But I do, I do think it's something that could happen today. And I don't exactly know exactly what the, what the box would be for following that in, but I do think it is something that that um, you know um, that an unbeliever might commit, they might indeed do this, and that's my personal belief. I could be wrong. A believer, you said. What's that? Did you say a believer could do that? No, no, no. I don't believe a believer. No, I don't. No, an unbeliever. So a, a a a a unregenerate. I do not believe that a believer could commit this. I also believe that salvation is available to anyone. Um, I think this is someone who will not pursue, who will not receive salvation. Who who I've met people like. The other thing is, I've met people like this who, who they tell you, I was like, if, if this was true, if Christ was true, would you want to know? No. If God is real, wouldn't you want to know? No. You're telling me that if, if what I'm saying is true, like you, you would rather live in a lie. Yes, I'd rather live how I want to live. I mean, people have told me this directly. I'd ra- they would say, I'd rather live how I want to live even if God is real, I don't want to have anything to do with him. Whoa. Like that kind of rejection. It, it doesn't matter at that point. Whether you, you can't argue with them. You can't say, well, here are the existence for God. What well, doesn't matter what, whether or not you tell them that God exists. They, they don't care. To them, it's I, they, they are so defiant against the spirit of God. So that's kind of, that's kind of yeah, go ahead, Hudson. I was just going to say, but... Even if we see someone that appears to be like that, you know, we can't just stop witnessing. Correct. Correct. We, we really don't know if they. You're exactly are right. Completely in defiance, and if the Holy Spirit isn't going to. Right. Them, so. Correct. I think you're exactly right. Thank you for saying that. And so I don't want to leave anybody saying, "Well, they're they're they've committed the unpardonable sin. They're a lost cause." You still plead with them to come to Christ. God, you know, God still works. I think part of it is that the Spirit of God, again, this is just me, my thinking, kind of my, in my weird zone. I have a weird zone of theology that I say, you know, I don't really bring out in the pulpit because it, it's, it's not really based in Scripture. It's kind of my own thinking. It is based in Scripture, but it's not authoritative. <laughs> I don't want to give people the impression that it is. Uh, but I kind of wonder if the Spirit of God, you know, He tenderizes our hearts. He makes, he draw, that God draws us to Him. The Spirit does a lot of work uh, around salvation, and if if we are um, if we're committing this sin, the Spirit might leave us alone. If you're, you know, and that that's kind of how I imagine it. Um, but then again, it's not up to us to determine when someone's committed the unpardonable sin. Um, it's not 
up to us to yeah declare that or imagine it or whatever. We we just always the Bible. This is the only place it's really mentioned in the whole Bible is right here. And so uh, it's not a major focus of the scripture. It's not something you should lose sleep over. But I do think it is worth taking seriously. I, I don't think that. Um, I think we sh- we should recognize that this that this is something that you know there is a um, there is a seriousness Christ brings to the table when it comes to this uh, blasphemy against the spirit. Okay, um, I hope I didn't raise too m- too many questions. Hope I hope that's all right. Um, I didn't get to baptizing baptizing work of the spirit. Indwelling of the Spirit or sealing of the Spirit. Let's just say that we'll talk about that next time. I'm asking you to do a project and have it ready for next week. Um, do you feel like, that, feel like that's a doable um, time frame? Hopefully it is. Uh, I would like to start soteriology quickly. This is the shortest of all the sessions, of all the uh, sections uh, here. And thank you very much for your good attention. Hope you all have a great night. See you later. Thank you.